When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley, joined by the great Weston Nakamura of the Real Vision Exchange. Just to give you a sense of what's on our radar today, crude oil reached a six-week high as OPEC predicted stronger demand going forward. I also think Goldman Sachs has an $80 price target going forward. Very bullish. Uh, the Chinese shares tumble as the government announces its plans to break up Alipay, owned by the Ant Group. Uh, and lastly, price of uh, Litecoin, crypto coin, Litecoin surges and then falls on a spurious press release. Uh, Weston, how are you doing, man? Welcome to the Daily Briefing. Thank you very much, Jack. Good to see you. And I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, today, So, Weston, today the Hang Seng, the Chinese stock index, was down about 1.5%. And it's connected um, to rumors, no real an announcement yet, but that China is uh, planning on breaking up uh, Alipay, which is owned by the Ant Group uh, company into separate apps. So a further, uh, a, a yet another step by the Chinese government to sort of put its hand in the affairs of uh, privately owned Chinese businesses. And the stock market is, is reacting. What's your take? Um, I, I don't see how this is any different from any other, you know, dozens of these sort of headlines, nor the dozens more that will, will be coming, but they certainly will be coming. Um, and I, um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have a, a lot of thoughts on them. Do you want to talk about, uh, the broader Chinese market? Do you want to talk yeah. about? Yeah, let's, yeah. let's do it. Let's do it. Bring it. Okay. Um, so first of all, I think that indeed Chinese equities are uninvestable. This is a very just basic premise is that if you want to buy the dip in China, that's fine. You could, you know, knock yourself out. You can do that, but you have to understand something, which is that you are not investing in capitalism. Um, so if you're looking at like, if you're saying Chinese equities are cheap and you're, you're comparing like, let's say like valuations, forward PE or whatever it is um, with, with US tech stocks or something like that, you're, they're two completely different playing fields. They're, they're two different sports altogether. So um, yeah, I guess you can use those sort of metrics, but you're applying them, you're misapplying them to a totally alien sort of market and, and economics and social fabric and system. So that's why I can, you know, bring myself to uh, buy any sort of dip. Um, and Weston, did you basis. always hold this view? Because, you know, a lot of people think of China, think of, think of economic growth. And of course, economic growth in China has been robust for, you know, close to 30, 40 years, you know, the Chinese miracle. But if you actually look at something like the, the Shanghai Composite Index, it, it topped in 2007 or 2008, and it since hasn't made a new high. So if you bought it then, you would not have done, investors would not have done well uh, at all. How do you square this sort of rapid economic growth in China with the fact that investments are just not performing uh, nearly as well? Well, um, I, I guess in this way, the Chinese uh, market is similar to all, all others in which the stock market doesn't reflect the broader economy. Um, I wouldn't say all investments are doing well. Um, for example, property at one point was doing uh, spectacularly well. 
Um, these days, not so much. Um, but not at, at all. One, yeah, at one point it was. And then you have this little problem of uh, Evergrande Group. Um, and that is uh, by no means a little problem at all. It's actually a yeah, very let's put actually a, a chart of this up. This is a chart that you made of the, I believe, the equity price. Um, can you see this chart and, and, and break it down for us? Yeah, um, so that was, not, not that it matters, that's not updated for like a few days, but it's, it looks the same, it's a multi-year chart. That's when um, Evergrande, so China Evergrande has been on my radar for some time, and it's really been on my radar right now, and it should be on, um, you know, I know there's a lot of people who think that it doesn't matter, it's not systemic, it's closed capital account, doesn't matter, it does matter, um, and here's why. So that chart is when China Evergrande Group broke below their IPO price. It should be far below the IPO price because the IPO is when things are looking promising, you know, like um, on, on the up and up. So it should be far below. Bonds are trading at 20 cents or actually now they're at 30 cents on the dollar. Seems like 30 cents too much. Um, and <laughs> and why, why, is, why is this essentially happening? And then Moody's and, and Fitch, like they consecutively downgraded. Um, and, and that's totally irrelevant. And that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that means nothing. But what does matter is the Chinese um, credit rating agency, when they downgraded um, China Evergrande bonds, now they are no longer eligible to be held as collateral. And China Evergrande is a, it's the world's most indebted developer. It's $300 billion of liabilities, 300 billion USD of, of liabilities. This is um, a situation that is deteriorating by you know, the, the half day you know, or, or the, the hour almost. Um, and it, they're scrambling to basically just make their interest payments, you know, not even their principal, they're just their interest payments on a short-term debt. No one's going to lend them anything on, you know, um, for the longer term. And um, it's, it is indeed systemic for, for many reasons. Um, but it comes down to, um, it's kind of like the Arctic situation where we, you know, you don't know who's holding what. So you don't know who has exposure to this. Um, and let's say it's only Chinese onshore Chinese investors and it's not, but let's say it is. Okay, great. Uh, I don't care about Evergrande. I care about what do people who care about Evergrande also care about? In other words, where do we crisscross? Where are we both holding something long in which you're going to have to get liquidated out of your position that I'm holding because your malinvestment in something like Evergrande or one of its many peers um, for which dominoes could sort of fall? That in itself is systemic. Um, there are you know several other reasons why as well there's like uh if you look at that same chart of the um of the the chart of the equity long term if you just throw usd cny on it the um the the yuan it you'll see that it trades inverse to uh the evergrande stock price until about june of this year and then they both actually trade directionally uh, um parallel to each other which is downwards and that's a very curious sort of thing. Like, what you know, this it's very strange timing. It also happens to be that the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank, um, they are the ones who fix the yuan rate every day. They would also be the ones who would have to do a bailout of Evergrande should it come to that. And those things are not, um, you know, like independent of one another. And so if Evergrande is actually having an impact on where PBOC is uh, fixing the currency, um, then that in itself makes it already systemic. Just because it's not a prob problem, uh, it doesn't mean it's not systemic, um, but that is having an impact on a significant FX pair. So there is um, systematic um, you know, 
contagion, if you will, or uh, importance to this um, to this company. And everyone should be very much aware of it. Yeah, the details of this Weston really are remarkable. Now, you know, in the U.S. and Europe, everywhere around the world, there's always Mickey Mouse accounting when it comes to this sort of things. But this, I think, really is is something new. Uh, Evergrande bonds, despite the fact that they are trading at 30 cents on the dollar, they're technically not in default. And that means that the uh, founder of Evergrande, uh, Hui Kayan, can sort of choose to do whatever he wants. Uh, he doesn't have to pay you know, the people at the top of the capital stack, the senior bondholders first, and then the mezzanine tranche, and then the equity. He can really do what he wants. And in fact, um, I was just reading a piece from, from Bloomberg today that uh, inst- he's actually paying out owners of its wealth products first, uh, who are actually not even listed, their liabilities are not even listed on the balance sheet. So uh, there are uh, you know, people who, who uh, are not listed on balance sheet as liabilities who are getting money, and yet people who are owning this debt, which has gone from uh, you know, 95 cents to 30 cents on the dollar, you know, they, they have very, they're very worried if they're gonna see even, even a dime of that, Weston. Yeah. Exactly. And that that's the thing is that so if no one's going to expo- like show their hand, right? So if they if there is um, an institutional investor who is holding Evergrande paper, who bought it at, I don't know, maybe they thought it was a deal at 70 cents on the dollar. Now it's at 20 and they're still long or some credit, um, you know, some credit hedge fund who's swung the hammer at 40. Um, and then, you know, it and then last week, was it when the bonds opened down 22 percent? And were halted. Single name bond, a single name bond halt before. I've never heard of that before. Um, and um, yeah, and and so so when that's happening, um, and then you have the likes of George Soros criticizing BlackRock for or uh, yeah, BlackRock for their position in China, and then you have Blackstone pulling out of a deal um, today to um, crushing uh, shares. Um, you know, like that's just like all we hear about are the are the kind of near misses. But there, that's not. It's not like coincidentally we're just catching everything that happens to like you know Blackstone just happened to get out of the way. And why are they getting in the way? Because there's obviously trouble in the property market. But um, there are people that are long. <laughs> there are people that are long um, China directly um, in China property, directly holding these uh, these bonds, long the equity, long the peers, or just long the Hang Seng Index, um, or holding the um, some of these bonds in a passive manner. Uh, because FTSE recently went in and included Chinese fixed income into their benchmark. And so if you're benchmarked to that, you have to own that. And so there are people that don't even know that they have um, exposure and they have direct exposure. They're creditors to these people. So You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, own, I think, an, an MSCI China ETF, and I think it's mostly equities. But if it were a blended portfolio, I would be it probably would have Evergrande in it. Um, uh, Weston, someone wants to know, Brandon wants to know your thoughts on SoftBank. Brandon, you are telepathic. Uh, Weston is just foaming at the mouth bullish. He wants to talk Japan. We talk China. This is sort of an episode focused on Asia, which we, we don't focus enough as a region. Um, but before we do, actually, the, uh, Mike Green spoke with Louis Vincent Gov about the very phenomenon that we're speaking of. The stern hand of the Chinese government is often seen as a strength. Um, and, and Mike and Louis talks about how that applied to the U.S. So 
Uh, it was on the essential tier today. Let's take a look. What has historically been viewed as the strength of China, this centralized control, this focus on community, is the direction that we're going in the West. Can, do, can we aspire to building bridges and not worrying about the double-breasted spotted mallard? Or, you know, can we, are, are we trapped in a different way? Well, so first of all, I think that part of that is part of that view that, that I see more and more and that has me really both upset and alarmed. Uh, yep. This view that, you know, what we need is for the U.S. to have a big industrial policy. Then we can, you know, then then everything will be great. So for Europe to have an industrial policy, then everything will be great. Well, it's like, well, hold on. Like, have you guys never picked up a history book? You know, we everybody, France had massive industrial policy in the 1970s. Where did that lead France or Japan in the 80s and 90s? And, and where did that go? You know, if, if governments were efficient allocators of capital, I, th I think we would know it by now. Weston, I feel like we've, covered uh, China a fair amount of coverage. But Wesson, I know that you've got some thoughts on Japan, and I, I promised you that I would give you ample room to share them. Uh, I, I know there's been a political development as well. Just tell us about how, you, how you're viewing Japan. Um, sure. Uh, can I just get, give one 30-second comment on that clip? Um, sure, sure, on, sure, yeah. China. Yeah. So um, I have a sort of out-of-the-box conspiracy theory in which, so this broader, like, Chinese... Um, you know, crackdown that's happening, the regulatory crackdown. Uh, I think that it's possible that China Evergrande is very much tied to that. In fact, I believe that China Evergrande might be the driver of that. So this started supposedly with a Jack Ma speech like a year ago. Um, it, the, a, one Jack Ma speech did not turn into uh, no more video games, right? Like it, it didn't snowball that way. So what I think is happening is that Xi Jinping is like why is he so like pressing so hard on like why is he going industry after industry and like relentlessly relentlessly just like you know bringing the hammer down on on you know on the on the tech sector on the education sector on, on whatever it may be and what i think is he's doing is that he knows that sometime uh in the near future he's going to have to bail out evergrand and when you bail out the evergrands and when you do stuff like that because he's he sees like you know he's not blind he'd see around the world when you do that um and you you basically have a Lehman or an AIG moment which is what this would be that's when pitchforks come out and this is something that Xi Jinping cannot have you cannot have unrest you cannot have populism boil up you cannot have 1.3 billion uh overworked and underpaid um you know Chinese citizens uh all of a sudden get this this sentiment of let's burn the house down, which is what Brexit was, which is what Trump was, which is what happens, you know, in in anywhere. It's not a socialist thing. It's not a you know a capitalist thing. It's a um, it's a small group of privileged people who get government bailouts and handouts uh, at the expense of the masses. That pisses people off. And so what he's trying to do, I think, is that he's trying to hammer down, uh, you know, he's trying to like flatten out the wealth, uh, close the inequality gap. And he's doing that to hedge himself, to front-run populism, so he can be a populist leader, so that when he has to do this big, disgusting bailout of the what was once the richest person in China, uh, the CEO of Evergrande, uh, when that happens and Evergrande's stock pops like 20% on that kind of news and foreign, um, you know, emerging market uh, credit hedge funds like um, get uh, wealthier, he won't have pitchforks coming after him. Um, so I think that 
this is the broader thing. And if you look at the chart that you um, uh, have of uh, Tencent versus Evergrande, they kind of mo are moving in inverse. So what that means is that this is another reason that I can't go long equities because uh, can't go long uh, Chinese equities because obviously if Evergrande goes down to you know if it becomes zero worthless, then that's going to crash the entire uh, financial system in China and then and then some probably. But if like good things happen to Evergrande, as in like government rescue like comes through, then Evergrande is going to stock is going to pop and the bonds are going to you know uh, pop as well. And when Evergrande securities go up, that's going to piss off a lot of people in China. Um, and so therefore, there, you're going to see every time something good happens to Evergrande, something is going to come out of left field again and smash down the tech sector or the whatever sector. Some other rule is going to come out. And I've been paying attention and it's actually been happening like in that kind of succession. So if you want to see like if you want to get any rhyme or reason for what's kind of going on, try paying attention from that angle. And um, and yeah, um, mm. that's 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 my theory. That's so interesting. So, I mean, I mean, the analogy is very apt between something like AIG or Lehman Brothers and Evergrande, uh, where they were enormously successful, but they were uh, their prosperity rested upon essentially a house of cards. Um, and now that Evergrande is is plummeting, it, it kind of has to be bailed out because as Darius Dale pointed out, I think last week, four-fifths of uh, private debt uh, is owned by banks. In the US, it's it's much less than that after the great financial crisis. Uh, it's owned by hedge funds, you know, credit funds, mutual funds, non-bank financial entities. But in China, it's all in the banking system. So if if you know, it goes kaput. Uh, it could, there could you could be some serious ripple effects, some serious contagion effects. So, uh, Weston, what you're saying is that if Evergrande is going to have sort of an AIG type bailout, uh, Xi Jinping wants to forestall and, and occupy Wall Street by, you know, uh, being very harsh onto Chinese Populist. tech companies, which are owned by you know typically very wealthy people. Exactly. Exactly. It's. Um... It, it, imagine like you know, an, you had a hundred eighty billion dollar bailout of AIG, and then Hank Paulson, former CEO of Goldman, then Secretary Treasury, uh, Treasury Secretary, um, smashed Goldman down. You know, like stock down. Like that might have alleviated some people, but you know, like so. So I think that that's what he's he's learned. He sees it everywhere. This is not again. This is not um a this is not a communist or a socialist or a capitalist or a system systematic thing. It's a People who are feeling like they are getting left behind, while a small minority of powerful and rich people continue to have, you know, very nice lives um, at their expense. And and when you have nothing to lose, when you feel like you have nothing to lose, uh, you're going to want to burn down the system. It happens. It happens everywhere, right? So Xi Jinping cannot have populism in that country, and so this is what he's. This is what he's doing, and it's certainly not from a Jack Ma speech, you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. kicked off all this whole thing. That's not what this is ongoing, and this is so so like China Evergrande will get bailed out, and the the more it gets uh, rescued, the worse they will have to come down on what you know just for the optics. Yeah, and, and for investors looking to play this, they could catch the falling knife uh, in in the K Web, the Golden Dragon Index. That's not what you're doing. They could try and short China. That is sort of you know pi piling on that trend. One alternative way to play it, I actually spoke with. Um, uh, Vincent Deliward today on Real Vision Live, who talked about why he's extremely bearish on the European luxury sector, such as LVMH um, yep. and, and other luxury brands, because yep. uh, about 50% of their revenues come from China. And guess who's not going to be wanting to buy any $1,000 purses or perfume or sunglasses uh, if, the, if this sort of uh, crackdown 
uh, on Chinese elites continues. Uh, I would say the Chinese elites. Um, but Wesson, that we've, we've talked about China. Tell us yeah. about Japan. Why are you uh, feeling the way you're feeling about Japan? And how does it relate to the uh, prime minister's announcement? Yes. Okay. So this is um, a rare moment for me, despite me being in Japan. I think that 100% of the time people hear me on the, the daily briefing, I'm criticizing Japan. Um, I am basically have been pounding the table uh, to be long Japan equities um, since September 2nd, Friday, September 2nd at 12.30 p.m. Japan to Tokyo time. Because Great. We can put some of these charts up as, as you talk. Yeah. Shortly before uh, 12.30 p.m., uh, this was during the uh, between the a.m. and p.m. Um, the, the AM close, during the lunch break when, when there's no trading going on. Uh, Prime Minister Suga comes out and gives a four-minute, I guess you'd call it a press conference, um, in which he announced that he's not going to be um, up for re-election in a month. For the uh, LDP, for his for his party's election, essentially he's he's like uh, he's stepping down, he's resigned, and at that moment, like that, I was kind of prepared for that kind of scenario should that happen, um, and I executed I executed trades. It was very rare for me to do it off exchange, but I had to because I thought that at the open it's just gonna I'm just gonna miss it. Twelve thirty, market open, reopen. Nikkei and topics are up two percent. The topics goes through a thirty year high. Uh, the Nikkei and topics have not stopped going up since then. I think they're up about 6%, 6.5%, um, whereas uh, the S&P is, what, what flattened down, um, the DAX, the Euro stocks, like, everything else is basically kind of like not really doing anything. Yeah, the, I, 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 I should explain that just the, what was on screen just now was the E-minis, that is S&P 500 futures. So it's very similar yeah. to the S&P. Sorry, Weston, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So that, that chart, you could see exactly the moment that that happened, right? So that upside is um, so. Here's what here's the long case. Here's the bull case for Japan. Stocks go up um, obviously when there's good news, but they also can go up when there's the removal of bad news or the removal of something negative. Prime Minister Suga is something negative, hence the um, the index, uh, hence the Nikkei basically being the worst performing index outside of Hong Kong and China uh, year to date. Um, it's been basically flat, whereas every other major index globally has been hitting all-time record highs. S&P, uh, obviously, uh, NASDAQ, Eurostock, Euro yeah, yeah um, UK, Australia, uh, Korea, everything, right? Japan is not. Japan is not. wasn't even at year-to-date highs at that time. So what you have is the removal of like the negative, okay? So that's, that's what's happening right now. Then you have um, an additional actual market support, which is Suga's successor um, and expectations of major fiscal stimulus Coming in, uh, like uh, regardless of what the you know end of September election outcome is, um, regardless of who it is, um, that's what the expectation is, and so that's an additional positive. Then you have uh, monetary policy. Um, not only is the Bank of Japan easing, but they are easing with they they are taking out uncertainty. Every other major central bank and and region in the world really is currently uh, debating whether or not the inflation that that um, exists is transitory or is it you know more long lasting. Japan has had 10 consecutive months of declining CPI. There is no inflation here. There's like not, that problem doesn't exist here. And if that problem doesn't exist, there is no taper risk. The Bank of Japan remains fully accommodative whereas the Fed, the ECB, the Reserve Bank of Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, Bank of Korea 
they're expected to, to tighten or they're just they're there's just policy uncertainty. So there's that going for Japan. Then you have the, rel the, the, the relative uh, underperformance, uh, like I was saying before. Um, valuation multiples are basically at, not that I care about this metric, but it's like 14x uh, for forward P for, for Nikkei versus like 22 for the for the S&P. I don't care, but people who are going to be long uh, Japan are going to use that as an excuse, so therefore I do kind of care. Um, and then uh, finally you have, um, basically you have this, like this is the only major liquid market like left where foreign investors are underweight um domestic the japanese investors are also allocated overseas so nobody owns like japan equities um like until until this past week week and a half or so so everybody is underweight um this this index this large liquid index that is um comprised of names that are not some obscure names these are this is like you know sony nintendo um toyota softbank all like you know like not these are major, you know, companies, right? And um, you have a you have a cheap yen. You have monetary policy support. You have uh, you have political uh, stability for once, uh, as opposed to you know German elections that are coming, French elections, uh, U.S. Um, midterms, U.S. debt ceiling, um, you know, all, all of that. And Japan looks like a for once, all of the stars are aligned for um, Japan to to just get foreign uh, inflows. And I I've been front-running uh, the foreign inflow. And the foreign inflow, you have to understand, is that nobody buys Japan out of greed. They buy it out of fear. Like, this is true fear of missing out. They buy Japan because if they don't buy Japan, they feel like they're going to get fired. And you're going into the last, you know, you're going heading towards bonus season. If you're not performing at, like, 25% up on the year, uh, you know, beating the S&P, you're going to be fired. So this is your last chance. Like, so, if, and, you're, and the reason you weren't long is because you probably were waiting for a pullback the whole time and it didn't come. So, you're going to get fear buying into Japan. Now, this is not forever. This is not sticky. This is the most disloyal capital ever. <laughs> but for now, there will be inflows into Japan uh, that uh, will push the index higher. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And Weston, so you, you say that this is a short-term trade. I, I've got a, rather than a, a long-term structural bullish case uh, on Japan, Weston, I've got a question for you, which is, to what degree are you worried about the slowing economy of Japan? In many ways, you say that Japan offers better you know, better comps than the U.S. It's it's politically stable, whereas in the U.S. we're I mean politically stable, but we have all this infrastructure spending, uncertainty around tapering. You don't have the problem in Japan, so I, I see that comparison. But I'd say, like the United States, like Europe, growth is slowing in Japan. Not uh, economic activity is slowing, but the rate of growth itself is slowing, and that typically is a uh, bearish signal for risk assets, particularly those that are hinged to cyclical things like a you know, copper mine, for example. So to what degree uh, are you worried about that or are you not, not worried about it? Um, approximately zero because <laughs> it doesn't really like so Japan GDP comes out and they'll have a, a they'll, they just missed um, a technical recession, uh, had a surprise beat. Nobody cares. Like, the, like you know, the, the like equities traded down um, at the same time. They also had the, the quarter before they when they had a horrendous um, GDP print. 
like equities or like up 60 basis points or whatever. Like so like the macro data for Japan does like it, it doesn't it doesn't move Japan. Japan just moves strictly on uh, the foreign like activity and flows, um, considering how much um, of a percent, even though like foreign ownership is very low. Um, and then, yeah, you have like the topics like breaking through to, you know, like the, the 30, 31 year high today. So today is a perfect example. Today, uh, Japan was actually trading cash uh, session. It was trading in the red until uh, 30 minutes before cash closed. And suddenly you got a ramp up um, and you have a close into the green and topics hit a 31 year, another 31 year high right at the, 30, the last 30 minutes. That kind of behavior, that kind of buying is foreign institutional long only behavior like of, of buying patterns like get get me done in you know last 30 minutes um and and so you're just gonna have have flows coming from from everywhere i think there's like four trillion worth of uh um like money market funds like record like parked away so like you're gonna have um there's plenty of ammo out there and then but going back to what you're saying about um france too if you want to play it as a long short, you can certainly do it as a you know long Japan uh, short Hong Kong uh, or or China. Um, you can do it against the S and P, but my preferred uh, DM of choice would be against the CAC 40 for the exact reasons that you said because that is a China trade. The the shorting shorting uh, France is absolutely a China trade. So yeah. Okay, thanks for that. And how about SoftBank? Oh, a question. What was his name? Brandon asked, "What's know your thoughts on SoftBank?" SoftBank is um, an absolute monster right now. Okay, so SoftBank, um, in the last since, since the since that announcement, that stock went up maybe about thirty percent in in two or three days since the, since then. It's a massive short cover. You have um, SoftBank is the most heavily traded uh, stock in the Tokyo Stock Exchange um, by notional value, and that's more than the usually most heavily traded um, double levered ETF. Um, SoftBank is basically ARK. Okay, so you have this chart, right? Um, SoftBank is basically ARK, right? It's it's like a, it's a long-term innovation sort of thematic fund of, of sorts. Um, and like ARK, it traded directionally uh, together, like lockstep, until uh, you see in May, they just kind of split off <laughs> from one another. And uh, that's because of a broader Nikkei pull down and all that. So an interesting trade right now might be to go long SoftBank and short ARC. And you're not really taking directional risk for that theme because you're long and short, but you're betting on that divergence to stop diverging, which is, looks like it has, and to basically clamp back down. Yeah, so it's both uh, stock, both, both funds have exposure to sort of moonshot, extremely high growth, um, stocks and the way that they pay for that is they're very richly valued based price to sales, price to earnings. So the idea is, you, you, yeah, you go long SoftBank, which has uh, gone down way more than Arc, um, and, and you, you go short Arc. That's very interesting. Weston, uh, we were running short on like time. One of them falls, so the other one goes up. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, Weston. Um, by the way, you posted something on the Real Vision Exchange where you posted about correlations between Cardano and the S and P 500 and the commitment of traders on the Japanese yen and Bitcoin. And it's also interesting, we don't have time to cover it now, um, but let's just go from one question to from the Real Vision Exchange. Um, 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 Amanish wants to know, hi Weston, your views on the S&P 500 moves based on implied versus realized volatility were very informative last month. 
I was wondering whether you expect to see a similar dynamic to play out at the expiry at the end of this week. Okay, so that wasn't that wasn't uh, historical vol versus uh, implied vol. That was, I think you're talking about the VIX two month, one month spread, the front end of the VIX curve um, when they basically. So when that spread widens, um, the uh, underlying index SP goes up. When it um, collapses, so when when the um, the price of the front month futures VIX and the second month futures VIX, when those prices start to converge, then you get um, a decline in the S&P. And that's because when there's a, when there's the front, when the front month VIX is rising relative to the later month, it means that there's more imminent volatility ahead that will abate sometimes, you know, in, in the soon to be later future. So uh, that's why that happens. Um, do I think it'll happen this month? I don't know, because um, it's not as obvious as it was the last time when I had my the market's going to fall on Wednesday, you know, uh, whatever the whatever the date was, but um, because the positioning in UVXY is not as extreme, but um, the spread isn't that extreme right now, um, so I, I don't I don't expect it to based on those reasons. Um, but it makes okay, sense. thanks for that. To everyone at home, uh, Weston is a very smart person, so some of it, if some of it went over your head, you don't worry, you're not alone. A lot of it went over my head as well. We will be posting the exchange link in the description. So you can see all of Weston's charts, some of the ones that you've seen today, but not all, as Weston has so many more, probably about uh, 15, I would say, as well as the comments from the other Real Vision members. Uh, Weston, do you want to quickly tell uh, viewers just a little bit about the new changes that the exchange has made? Sure. Um, so this is, um, you know, much the work of um, Farrell Murphy um, and, you know, Peter Picasso, who's familiar with the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Farrell doesn't get much of uh, airtime, but she deserves a shout out. Um, it's basically a uh, redone um, version because we had a lot of like issues with the with the older version where if you hit the back button, you know, you lose all your work and like uh, there's like a lot of basic sort of MySpacey things that we had to kind of clear out. Um, and right now it's kind of going through a, a stage of where you know like Facebook when they would just all of a sudden change the entire platform overnight and people would get pissed off and. But then you get used to it and forget about it. So I think they were going through that kind of stage right now, where we're just getting accustomed to it. Um, but there's a lot of great, great new features, and I encourage anyone to please just join um, because the exchange is not a bunch of servers um, with a bunch of code and a new platform. The exchange is the people within the exchange interacting with one another. So yeah, and you know, I think a lot of people watching, definitely me, are very into financial Twitter because they get to interact with like-minded people who are into similar things, whether it's equity, credit, volatility, crypto, whatever. And Twitter is great, but a lot of it, you, sometimes you don't want to share it with the entire world because then, you know, on you say, if you apply for a portfolio manager job three years later, they're like, oh, you had, you posted this in 2017. So real, the Real Vision Exchange is much more of an interior thing where it's just the Real Vision members, uh, what you call, Weston, the hive mind. And correct me if I'm wrong, going forward, or I think starting already, uh, posts are not available to the free members. So you have to be a member to post as well as to see posts. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, not for everything. So select things that, you know, you choose to, to you know, to, to release to everyone. That's, yeah. But for, for, for everyone, for the most part, yeah, by default, you're you're blocked. <laughs> like, uh, you're, you're, it will block. Yeah. And it's Got true, it. like, the, the, the members are basically, like, we are all completely different and we have nothing to do with each other except for the fact that we are all signed up to Real Vision. So we are all proactively taking steps to learn about finance. And that's the one thing that we have in common. 
So that's the, an amazing group of people to have 100% of the cohort of. So. Yeah, right, definitely. Um, so thank you, Weston, so much for joining us, sharing your thoughts on Japan um, and Asia as well. Um, if, by the way, if you're watching this, you said, it's great you covered the world because uh, it's too much US often. Uh, but I wanted to learn about Europe. Definitely check out my interview with um, Vincent Deliward. And speaking of plus, uh, Lily Frankis will be back on Wednesday for a Real Vision Live. On tomorrow's daily briefing, it will be Tony Greer and Maggie Lake. So stay tuned for that. Thank you again, Weston, for uh, being with, here, with us. And thank you, everyone watching at home. Have a great night. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.